Good morning. How's my friends doing over there in Fort Worth and Frisco Plano? And we're right here in Dallas, and it is awesome to be together. We are in the middle of a series, actually wrapping up very quickly now in the next couple of weeks, a series called How He Built This, where we're talking about just things that have been core to us in the very beginning that have made us the community of faith that we believe God wants us to be. And this morning, we're talking about one that is increasingly important, but something that we have held near and dear from the very beginning. Let me set it up by just telling you this. Um, I asked my sophomore in college daughter just yesterday if uh, she had ever heard the story, The Emperor's New Clothes. And she goes, you're such a dad. It's The Emperor's New Groove. (laughs) To which I said, no, it's not. I'm not talking about some mythical king who was turned into a llama and tried to build a water park on land that wasn't his to celebrate his birthday and love for self. I'm asking you if you know who Hans Christian Andersen is, or I should have said, if you remember the stories I read to you when you were a little girl, do you remember and know the story of the emperor's new clothes? And she goes, huh? Shame on me for not drilling that into my little girl and my little boys. And maybe for you, I've taught at the porch a number of times. And when I do, I've actually made mention of the emperor's new clothes. And they all do the same thing. They elbow each other and go, hey, new clothes. It's the new group. <laughs> Old men. You know, that's what they do. Now, listen, I can care less if my kids don't know the sitcoms of my youth or the movies of my youth. Um, I don't care if they don't even know the ones of the 90s. I don't care if they don't know about Cheers or MASH in the 80s or Seinfeld. I care deeply, though, if they don't know about the fables that teach morality that is consistent with the faith. The Emperor's New Clothes. You know the story? Here's how it basically goes. Uh, it's Hans Christian Andersen, written about 180 years ago. He was a Danish uh, storyteller and writer. It's the story, very quickly, of a king that was obsessed He starts the story by saying, all this king cared about was uh, his new wardrobe. Most kings were found in councils and being concerned with their soldiers. They said this king was not found in his council, but in his closet. And he had a different outfit for every hour of the day. Now there were some men from a far town um, that heard about this king's infatuation with his wardrobe and thought they could exploit that. So these swindlers showed up and then said they were magic weavers and that they had... um, some material that was more beautiful than any material that anybody had ever seen. And they could weave it on their magic looms. And that this material was so spectacular that only the most wonderful people could see it. And it was invisible to everyone who was unfit for office and the job they currently had, or who was simple in character and was a fool. Now the king was totally smitten by this idea to have this new bit of clothing. And so he said, here's some gold, here's some Silk, the finest we have. Go and add it to your material and make me a wonderful outfit. And so down they went and they began to, uh, the king gave them looms. And of course there was nothing on it because these men were swindlers. And all they did was count the gold and laugh and hide the silk so they could sell it later. And the king eventually was so excited to see what he could see that he sent his oldest and wisest counselor down there who went to see. And when he got there, he was shocked to find out that there was nothing to see except these men mythically working on these looms. And the men right away looked at him and said, can you see it? Do you see the beauty? You see the magic of these clothes that only the wisest of men can see? That nobody who is unfit for office can see? That fools can't see? But only smart men can see the beautiful intricacy of our work. Now the guys did not want to go back upstairs and tell the kings that they could not see this stuff because they had already been told if they couldn't see it that they were unfit for their job. They didn't want to lose their job, so they went back upstairs and told the king, oh, it's amazing, king. You will be so pleased when they're done. And so the king sent another counselor down there, to which they then added to the uh, conversation they had with the first. Oh, the previous wise counselor saw this. Do you see what we see? Do you see what he saw? Do you see the beauty? He too didn't want to lose his job, so he went back up and told the king that in fact what they were doing was amazing work. 
And so the king was so excited, he demanded to be done in a day. And so up came the men with their magic clothes. That only those who were unfit for office and were simpleton and fools could not see. And he stood there in his underwear while all his court watched him be adorned in these clothes and everybody who did not want to say what they thought they didn't see because they didn't want to be considered unfit for office remained silent. And the king himself goes, this is ridiculous. Except everybody else is telling me they see something. If I tell them that I don't see this, they'll think I'm not fit to be their king and I'm a fool. And so he said, let the parade begin. And the emperor in his new clothes started to march through town in all of his splendor. And everybody had heard about what the king was doing and about these weavers from another land. And so they all didn't want to be considered fools. And they just sat there and go, oh, and everybody's saying, do you see what all the wise men see? Until eventually as the parade commenced, it got to a little child. And that little child spoke up and said, the king is in his boxers. The king is naked. The king has no clothes. And then people started to look at one another and whisper and go, that's kind of what I see. Do you see what the kid sees? And the next thing you know, they started to whisper and the whispers turned to laughter and the king turned red. And in shame, he made his way back. That's the emperor in his new clothes. It is a story that is so symbolic of what is happening in our day and age that it sets up well with where I am going. Let me just say what God has said is true of a land that is under judgment. I'll take you to Isaiah. And Isaiah is going to share with you why he is turning the people over because they have rejected God as their king. They have um, rejected God's word as their authority and their conscience and their guide. And now everybody is coming up with what they believe um, is right and glorious and true. And as a result of that, they were going to be um, left reaping what they have sown. They're going to sow to the wind and they're going to reap the whirlwind. They're calling evil good and good evil because they no longer look to God, a loving father who tells them the way of life and righteousness. And so they're going to now have this as their consequence. He says, for behold, the Lord God of hosts is going to remove in Isaiah 3, verse 1, from Jerusalem and Judah, both supply and support. The whole supply of bread and the whole supply of water. Here's why. Because you're gonna live in a way that's foolish and it's gonna cost you eventually everything. He says, I'm not gonna just take away bread and water. Bread and water are gonna be gone because the mighty men and the warrior are gonna be gone. Watch this. The judge and the prophet are gonna be gone. The one who can understand and hear from God, the diviner, the elder, the wise, the people who speak the truth, they're going to be people in positions of power that will go along with the prevailing idea of the day that if they hold to these old and ancient truths, the good way, as Jeremiah said in chapter 6, verse 16, the ancient paths where the good way is, those men are going to be gone. And everybody is going to try and impress everybody else with their enlightened understanding that they can see what a, even a child can say that's not true. C.S. Lewis wrote about this um, himself in the uh, 20th century. He said this, in a sort of ghastly simplicity, we remove the organ and demand the function. In other words, we pull the heart 
out of individuals and we demand that the life is still there. He writes this, we make men without chest. He's talking about their, without the essential organs to operate as men, lungs and hearts, courage. And yet we expect from them still virtue and enterprise. We laugh at honor and are shocked that we find traitors in our midst. We castrate and bid the geldings to be fruitful. That's exactly what's happening. We no longer teach morality and virtue in our schools. In fact, we even mock it. There is um, actually something that I know for a fact is happening in our public schools. Uh, it's called the, the Kagan Cooperative Learning Structure. Uh, it's called Round Robin with Consensus, where literally they will teach a story to kids and they will say, hey, here's the story, here's the true elements of it. Now what we want you to do though is go in your groups and talk about it and if your group comes up with a different answer than the one I'm giving you, I want you to give me the answer the group is giving uh, one another, even though it's inconsistent with what I'm teaching you. Do you hear what I just said? Here's the story, here's the truth, but go work it out on your own and come up with your own truth. We know a story of an individual in our, our body that was in this class and the group went back and they said, you know what, we don't like the way that story turned out. We don't think that's true. We should make the story this, this is the truth. And so everybody turned in what they thought was the truth except one person said, no, you told us this was the truth. And that person turned in the truth and the teacher gave them an F because the whole purpose was to learn to think like other people. That is called social conditioning. That is, told, that is called teaching children how not to say the emperor is naked. We all know that um, the saying that is out there goes like this, that um, art imitates life, but every now and then life begins to imitate art just a little bit. Uh, and art can be used in a weaponized way. Uh, this happened, by the way, in uh, Bolshevik Russia, in in Stalin's Russia, there was what was called social realism, where they manipulated and controlled public opinion. Where there was an ideology that was enforced by the Soviet state as the official standard for art. And what they started to do is they said, listen, all artists must glorify political and social leaders of communism. Um, every artist had to join the uh, Union of Soviet Artists and, and the government required that all the art that was produced idealized images of political leaders and communist ideas. And it was beginning to try and use art as a weapon to say, listen, this is truth. This is what you need to embrace. Here's just some of the, the pictures that go like this, where you'll see again and again, this art all throughout. It's called socialist realism. Let me just show you something else about what's happening in our country. And I know art is subjective. So before I actually get to that, let's tell you, I, I, uh, my second grandchild was born to us this weekend, which is awesome. Very, very fun. I, uh, my oldest grandchild, though, is two. And so sometimes we keep uh, the oldest grandchild when things like this happen. And um, every now and then we have meals and hamburgers and we have mustard and we catch it. We leave ketchup out. And when two-year-olds get a hold of a ketchup bottle, amazing things can happen. When they get a hold of a piece of chalk, you know, they will uh, actually jump up and, and this is kind of what a two-year-old will do. Well, this is actually not the work of my two-year-old with ketchup, the previous one. This is the work of a guy by the name of Cy Twombly. Now, why do I show you art by Cy Twombly? Well, because uh, if you had eyes and you weren't unfit for office, and if you weren't a fool, you can see what I see when I look at that. 
What do you see, Todd? Well, let me just quote Tate Modern, which is the uh, Museum for Modern Art in London. This, this here is part of Twombly's Bacchus series. Bacchus is the Roman god of wine. Notice that red is the color of wine, but also of blood. And these canvases encompass both the sensual pleasure and the violent debauchery associated with the god. The contrast is echoed in the paintings. Combination of euphoric loops, saw upwards, and vermilion floods of paint that ooze downward down the campus. The unfurling gestures of these paintings were made like Henry Matisse's works of old age, with a brush affixed to the end of a pole, which lends them the vitality and scale. Y'all impressed? You ought to be. Because just a few years ago, this sold for $46.4 million. and the emperor has no clothes. <laughs> now, why did Twombly paint this in 2005? Well, because in his other untitled work, which I'm gonna call Scribbles on a Blackboard, <laughs> that he created in 1968, it was sold just a few years before Ketchup on Canvas, not its name, it's the one I'm giving it. It was also called Untitled. This piece of art sold for $70 million. It's because there's no beauty, there's no abstract reality anymore. It's just, if you're enlightened, you could, I think Twombly is down there counting his gold and his silk, cracking up at the stupidity of the emperor. I really do. Let me tell you, our kids see it. Um, there were a couple of boys that were in San Francisco that were told to go to the San Francisco Museum of Modern Art with the rest of their classmates, and they're walking around. This is a true story, it's happened in 2016. And they started to look around, they said, is this really what you call art? And they go, I think we can do that. And so they literally go, let's make our own art. And they took their jackets off and they threw them in a pile on the floor. And they go, everybody just walked by their jackets. And so one of the kids, they picked up their jackets and they were literally walking around, they were bored to death thinking, this is a joke. They want us to be inspired by this. And they, one kid took off his glasses and he walked up and he put it next to a wall. This is exactly what he did. And then they walked away and they came back in the room and then this started to happen right here. <laughs> People stood here and they looked, they started taking pictures of it and all the genius of it. And they said, they couldn't believe it. I put my Burberry glass on the floor beneath a placard describing the theme of the gallery. And within about three minutes, people appear to be viewing my handiwork as bonafide art. He said, although I couldn't really tell because I couldn't see without my glasses. <laughs> now look, this is funny when it comes to art, unless you're the one who shelled out 70 million for scribbles on a blackboard. But what happens is when you sit here and, you, and you're somebody that dares to take on the genius of modern art, People will start to call you names like, well, Todd, you're just a snob. Todd, you're just uninformed. Todd, you're just unintellectual. You don't see the beauty of Bacchus's wine and violence. There's a uh, woman by the name of Elizabeth Noel Newman, and she was a, um, a writer in Nazi Germany, a Nazi propagandist, because she had to be if she wanted to keep her job. And uh, she survived, the Allied invasion of Germany a letter later came out and she started to study and ask herself, how in the world could um, so many people sit there and be silent in the face of what was happening in Nazi Germany? And so she came up with a social theory called the spiral of silence. This is what she says. She says, the way that, that leaders get folks afraid to speak out 
against the most horrible evils imaginable, which includes the mass slaughter of human beings, is that they, um, they know that a tiny majority of the population can control the conversation because most people don't wanna go against the tide of public opinion. And so all they've gotta do is um, intimidate the majority by taking a few courageous people who say the emperor has no clothes and that's not wise, when the cultural elite in media, the cultural elite in entertainment, the cultural elite leaders in university settings, the cultural leaders in art are saying this is beauty, this is true, even though that you are deconstructing centuries of human consensus, even though you are flying in the face of, of millennia, generational studies of what happens when you deconstruct and redefine the family. You start to say, what we need to do is take a few people who are speaking out against this loud minority and, and you, you say, well, you're just out of step. You're a bigot, you're intolerant, you're a hate monger. You don't understand, you're unfit for office and you're a fool. And then maybe even imprison them and suffer, make them suffer and persecute them. And then others will go, well, not only do I not want to really go against the tide of public opinion, I don't want to be called those names and I don't want to suffer. And so even though they continue to see that the emperor has no clothes, they just get quiet. And the more they get quiet, the more everybody else goes, well, everybody else thinks it must be okay because surely if it wasn't, they would speak up. And the next thing you know, nobody is speaking up. Because Martin Niemöller is thrown in jail because Dietrich Bonhoeffer is hung. Can I just tell you guys something? I don't know where we're headed in this country, but let me tell you how he built this. He built this with a firm conviction that this is the word of God and that God is good, his word is true, and that disobeying it is a really big deal and it's not gonna work out with people and we were gonna be prophets. And I don't really care what they do to us. And I don't care what they do to me. We are going to continue to speak the truth in love. He built this with a conviction that when they start to shut down churches because they will not follow the party lines and they will continue to say that, hey, I love you, but what you're doing is destructive. I love you, but what you're doing is gonna to lead to the ruin of society and it's gonna cost you your very soul. And when they call that hate speech, we're gonna be the first church they shut down and we're gonna be the last church to shut up. You need to know that from the very beginning, we have been committed here to not really caring if this building that God has given us together to invest in and um, develop and to steward for his glory to make disciples and welcomes others in to strengthen and uh, their hearts and give them courage. We are planning for the day when they come and take this and the society of public opinion suppression and militant progressive ideology is housed here, that there will be thousands of faithful communities of godly people spread all throughout this community that will not lose heart and that will teach sound doctrine and that will keep saying, hey, I love you, emperor, but you're naked. And that's not beautiful art, that's just chaos and you're fleecing people. And anybody who doesn't wanna say that is unfit for office and is a fool. And if you wanna go ahead and punish me because I say that, I'm ready to be punished. Because to live is Christ and to die is gain. But I will be his servant. You need to know something. We are not concerned that they would take this building from us. We are absolutely committed to making sure that God's voice is not taken from us. That's how he built this. 
That's why every week when you're together in your community groups, you gotta ask yourself, what are we doing to strengthen the church? If we're the only church that is left, how sound are we in doctrine? How courageous are we? Are we loving our neighbors right now when we're not thrown in jail because we do that? Are we willing to suffer for our faith? Are we going to remain steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord? Are we gonna be on the alert, standing firm in the faith, acting like godly men and godly women, being strong, let everything we do be done in love, or do we not want to go against the loud voice of the minority when everybody can see, this doesn't look right, it seems a little crazy. There's a lot of crazy going on, and I think our kids understand it and our kids know it. A number of years ago, I was speaking at the porch, and um, it was right about the time that um, one of my childhood heroes had been just offered the Arthur Ashe Award for Courage in Sports. His name was Bruce Jenner. I grew up watching Bruce Jenner in the 1976 Montreal Olympics. I was somebody that thought, man, I would love to be a decathlete. I'd love to be the greatest athlete on earth. And um, I ate Wheaties because of Bruce Jenner. And I, I can tell you that um, I agree with ESPN. Now, I want you to listen to me in this next little section. I agree that Bruce Jenner should have won the Arthur Ashe Award for courage in sports, for being willing to come out and say, I'm struggling with my sense of manhood. I'm struggling with the fact that I feel more comfortable in women's clothes. I'm struggling with my, my gender identity. That takes a tremendous amount of courage. Bruce Jenner's problem was not that he struggled with what has been called for ages gender dysphoria. Bruce Jenner's problem was his church. Bruce Jenner did exactly what we ask men and women to do here. We say, devote yourself daily to God's word. Pursue each other relationally. Be, be committed to one another in love. And then live authentically. Talk about areas of your life that are... Um, troubling your soul and, and out of step with God's word. It takes a tremendous amount of courage for one of the greatest athletes in the world to stand up and say, I, I think I'd be more comfortable if I was a girl. Do you know what I would have said to Bruce Jenner if he was here and he said that? I would have said, Bruce, let me just tell you something. I sometimes think I'd be more comfortable if I just gave way to my flesh and I just um, indulged constantly in pornography. If I left and forsook my wife, and constantly had illicit relationship after illicit relationship. I mean, Bruce, you need to know something. Every day I go to war against that mindset in my flesh. And so the fact that you're following another road away from God in your um, sexual identity issues or in your gender confusion, I've got gender confusion. I think a man is somebody who conquers woman and, and who is sexual conquest after sexual conquest. And it's defined by their athletic dominance and financial success. That's all, Bruce, uh, stuff that I've got, to I've got to go to war against because it's waging war against my soul. So welcome, brother. God bless you that you would come to me and live authentically so I can pray for you, encourage you, and remind you of things that are true. Feelings are real, but they're not reliable, Bruce. No temptation, Bruce, has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And Bruce, with this temptation, God will provide the way of escape also so that you might be able to endure it, 1 Corinthians 10, 13. So glad you're here, friend. Bruce Jenner's problem was not his courage to say, hey, I'm struggling. Bruce Jenner's problem was his church. And people called him to follow the Kardashians and not Christ. And somebody needs to stand up and just say, hey, Bruce, I love you, man, but that's not the way to truth and life. There's an article I've got right here where Caitlyn Jenner, as he 
goes by now, is experiencing what's called sex change regret. Because there's a way that seems right to the Kardashians, but in the end, it's the way of death. This is Romans chapter one, verses 22 through 32. It says, professing to be wise, they become fools and they pay $46.4 million for ketchup on canvas. They come after Paula Ratliff, who is the world's leading um, world record holder in the marathon. They come after Martina Navratilova, who herself is a lesbian, who are speaking up and saying, we cannot let individuals who say they're women, even though they're men, compete with women in sports. We're gonna completely eliminate everything that we as women have fought for, which is the ability to compete and enjoy sports the way men do. But if men who can't compete with men come over here and compete with women, there's gonna be no more women's sports. And you watch the way the LGBTQ community is coming after Martina Navratilova and after Paula Ratliff. Professing to be wise, they become fools. When we start to say that when a man says he's a woman, we've got to treat him like a woman, crazy things happen. I, I, I point to you uh, to the case of Stephen Wood. Who's Stephen Wood? Well, Stephen Wood now goes by Karen White. Well, who's Karen White, Stephen Wood? Well, it's an individual that has pleaded guilty to multiple rapes, sexual assault of both women and children, and who after being arraigned and indicted said, I think I'm a woman. And so in enlightened England, professing to be wise, they have determined that if a man thinks he is a woman, they need to let him be incarcerated with women. And so what do you think this man who has sexually assaulted women and children do, has done when you put him in a locked up area with women? Answer, headline, Yorkshire Evening Post, 10, 11, 18, prison service apologizes for sending transgender rapists to women's prison because he sexually assaulted four women when he was in there. It is crazy. And everybody goes, no, it's not, Todd. It's the enlightened way. No, it's not. It's the way of death. And somebody with the faith of a child has to speak up and just goes, guys, I just want to tell you, I've just noticed that every time that the judge and the prophet and the person who can sense the divine and the elder, the wise person, or every time the child who just goes, what do you mean you get to let us pick our sex? Why are you all doing this? Aren't you the adults? Children can rule the world? Someone's got to speak up. What happens is this, in verse 24, God gives them over to the lust of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them because they exchange the truth of God for a lie and they worship and serve the creature themselves rather than the creator, the God who loves them and wants to bless them forever. Now, I want to skip verses 26 and 27, lest in our arrogance that we don't struggle with certain um, things like uh, Bruce Jenner and Martina Navratilova, we become uh, elitist. And let's just go to verse 28. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind. Well, what's a depraved mind, Todd? Back there in 26 and 27? Well, yes, but let's just keep reading. 
They do things which aren't proper. They're filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, and greed. They, 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 they live to make a living. They don't live to make a difference. They don't really care about other people as long as society's working out well for them. They're full of envy. They murder. Jesus says, you want to know what murder is? Murder is telling your brother you hate him. Murder is when, instead of telling a brother that you see some spiritual trespass or something that dishonors God in their life or damages relationships, instead of going to them in humility and loving them, you go and you talk about them behind their back and you create strife and deceit and you're, mal you're malicious in your, with your tongue and you're a gossip. This is all part of being men of depraved mind. May it never be. Slanderers, people who are really hater of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, and unmerciful. And although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but they give hearty approval to those who practice them. In other words, even though that's crazy that we say a man in underwear has the greatest clothes on imaginable, we give hearty approval to folks who keep weaving those kind of tales and that kind of fabric. This is our job. You know, Jeremiah was uh, God's prophet. Jeremiah was called by God uh, to speak, and he didn't really want to speak because he knew it wasn't going to go well that was out there. And so in Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 17, God just says to him, this, Jeremiah, I've called you for this purpose. You're my prophet. He can, I could say this to you today. Hey, church, God has called you for this purpose. You're his salt and your light. God has sovereignly determined that you are people who bring forth the word of God. It's your job. It's not your job to be comfortable. And Jeremiah, I don't want to do it. Who am I, Lord? You're my prophet. You're my church. But I, I, Lord, they're not going to like me. And he says, now you gird up your loins, Jeremiah. You get ready to run and you speak to them all that I have commanded you. Do not be dismayed before them or I will dismay you. I want to tell you something. The church in the world is being dismayed because the world looks at us and goes, you guys don't believe what you believe. You don't know what truth is. You don't really care about truth. You guys, um, maybe you want to pick some pet sins in verses 26 and 27, but man, you're going to let 28 through 30 run wild in your churches and not talk about it. You're going to say that God is concerned about marriage, but when you guys don't get along in your marriages, you're just going to kind of turn the other way when they pop back up with a new wife or a new husband. Irreconcilable differences. That's the last day's Men finding for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desired church. Hey, we might be the first church they shut down, but we're going to be the last church that shuts up if we're Jesus' church. And we're going to suffer for the sake of the gospel because it's the loving thing to do. Listen, George Orwell said this. We know who he is, right? <laughs> George Orwell said, the further society drifts from truth, the more it will hate those who speak it. He said, in a time of universal deceit, when everybody thinks the emperor has new clothes, telling the truth is a revolutionary act. And the world can paint ketchup on canvas and say it's beautiful. And beauty may be beauty in the eye of the beholder, but truth is in the hand of the creator. Can I just tell you this about tolerance? Old tolerance is that, hey, we should all accept different views, and we should. One of the problems in our world today is that we no longer 
can have civil discourse. I, 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 I don't ever mind sitting with somebody who goes, Todd, I disagree with you. I don't think it's a good interpretation of scripture. I think God does want us to follow our heart. I think God does want us to, to just be in touch with our feelings and it's okay what the Kardashians are saying. I don't mind having civil discourse about that. That is the old tolerance. The new tolerance is you must accept different views as true and we cannot tolerate new tolerance because it's not love. Love without truth is not loving. And truth that's not said in a loving way won't be heard. And so we have to be individuals that encourage and speak the truth in love and brace ourselves for the consequences of it. God says this to us in Proverbs 24, verses 11 and 12. He says, deliver those who are being taken away to slaughter. Oh, hold them back. If you say, see, we did not know this. We didn't know they were going to slaughter. We didn't know they had enough clothes. Does he not consider it who weighs the hearts? And does he not know it who keeps your soul? And will he not render to men according to their work? You know, it's so interesting. Alexander Solzhenitsyn, who grew up under Stalinistic Russia and was put in the gulags and who suffered right there, he said, I, I, I've studied, he wrote eight volumes on trying to figure out how Russia gave itself away to oppressive communism. And at the end of the day, he said, we got here, this, this genocidal people that killed millions of our own, we got here for one simple reason. He goes, it's the reason old men told me at the beginning of the communist revolution what the problem was. He says, we're beginning to swallow communism, socialism, and all these ideas because men have forgotten God. He said, I have studied now for years. I've suffered underneath it. I've written eight volumes of philosophy and speculation. And he says, I can sum up the reason that Soviet Russia, that socialistic, communistic, oppressive, uh, murderous Russia became what it was. He goes, because men forgot God. Can I tell you where we're headed? because men forgot God and because courageous people aren't speaking up anymore because we're being worried about how we're gonna be dismayed by public in the public and called names like hate monger and intolerant. But here's God's antidote. Let me just give you just a point here. I want you to hear these points. This is the problem. The problem is that men are forgetting God. The problem is separation from God. That's, that's our country's problem. I, and I'm never surprised when sinners sin. That's what they do. They're just fulfilling the job description. And so what does God tell us to do with folks who don't know God is good? We got to tell them who God is. Most men don't even know the character and nature of God. When, when people say, I don't believe in God because blah, 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 blah. I go, well, I don't believe in that kind of God either. Do you know who God is? Do you know the story? Do you know that he loves you? Do you know he's not mad at you? The problem is separation from God. And the solution is that people would discover God again. The problem, we say it another way, the problem is sin. And the gospel of Jesus Christ is the solution. Romans 1.16 is, is Paul's summary verse of this, which is, therefore, I am not ashamed of the gospel because I believe it's the power of God for the salvation of my country and my friends, of Bruce Jenner, of the Kardashians, of Stalin, of Todd Wagner, to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, and I'm going to tell it to every single person I can. Listen, sin, this is a, a wise quote by Oswald Chambers. She said this, sin is fundamentally a destruction of a relationship. That's what sin is. It's not wrongdoing, it's wrong being. 
It's walking around like Colin McGregor in your underwear. And everybody go, look at that strut and look at those duds and go, listen, I mean, first of all, it's just a man. Someone's going to punch him in the face one day and he better learn how to walk right. And secondly, he doesn't have any clothes on. So what's the solution? It won't surprise you that God's given us one. It's right here in Ephesians chapter four. Watch this. He gave some apostles, men sent forth from God. Verse 11, some as prophets. He gave people who would tell the gospel to others. Folks who would shepherd their heart with compassion and teach them. And he would, he would raise up a group of people so if they shut their building down, there's all kinds of people that wouldn't shut up. They'd equip the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. That's what we're doing here every week. You're not coming to listen to me. God forbid that that's church. Church is a people who have fundamentally been restored into a relationship with God, who love others. And so as a result, because we've been taught, because we've seen the goodness of God, we're no longer children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine and by Kagan cooperative learning structures. But we grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom our whole body, the, the church of Jesus Christ, it's the hope of the world, being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. That, that's you, that's me, that's us, that's what our land needs. So this I say, Paul writes, and I affirm with the Lord that you no longer walk as the Gentiles work, walk. May gossip and slander and evilness and greed, may it not mark us any longer. But this is what's going on. This is when you want to go, how is our world, how is it going this direction? Verse 18 is the answer. We are darkened, the world is darkened in their understanding. They're excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. And it doesn't mean they're stupid. It means that nobody has sat with them and said, let me talk about God. Let me talk about his love. Do you know he's not mad at you? Do you know that he doesn't think that you need to perform for him? Do you know that the call is not the dead church? Do you know that going to a weekly meeting is not what he wants? Do you know that giving and being philanthropic is not what you want? Do you know being inauthentic and acting like you're holy while you go home and look at porn or you cross-dress there or you say you don't drink and go home and sip your little wine when no one's looking? That's not godliness. Forgive us that we've represented it as that. They've become callous, verse 19. They've given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. But not you. You didn't learn Christ this way. And then he just gets down to verse 29 and he says this. You gotta love him. Let no unwholesome word, church, proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment. Can I just tell you something? Westboro Baptist failed miserably at this. And the media who is trying to make a point loves to put up Westboro Baptist, this tiny 100-member church in Kansas that doesn't know the word of God, who acts like God hates homosexuals. God doesn't hate homosexuals and he doesn't hate divorcees. God hates divorce and God hates homosexuality because he loves men. And God hates broken heterosexuality like is rampant inside Todd Wagner because he loves me. 
And if it bothers you that your pastor has to go to war every single day to be chaste and faithful and kind and humble, then you just need to find another church. Because I cannot live inauthentically in front of you and be well. But the day you start to say, well, Todd, come on, man, you know, give yourself a break. Just dabble a little bit in there, okay? Or just don't embarrass us publicly. Uh-uh. I need you to admonish me faithfully. I need you to pray for me and counsel me biblically. Just like my community does. The only difference between me and Bruce Jenner is that I had a faithful community who loved me. and said, Todd, the way of Christ is the way. Let me remind you of what is true. Let's pray for you. Let's meditate on your word together. Let's remind ourselves about the character and nature of God. No, we should let no unwholesome word proceed from our mouth, but only such a word that is good for edification, the building up according to the need of the moments that will give grace to those who hear. Don't grieve the whole spirit of God. Don't be silent. Don't swallow your sin. Don't forsake your um, calling. Be his prophet. Don't be dismayed before them or he'll dismay you. Gird up your loins and run. And we got to make sure that right here, we let all bitterness and wrath and anger and slander be put away along with all malice. And then watch, be kind to one another, even to those, as it says back there in verse 18, are darkened their understanding. Kindness has converted more men than zeal, eloquence, and knowledge combined. But man, we ought to be marked by zeal and eloquence and knowledge. And we ought to be kind. I had a young man come up to me yesterday and he said, Todd, he goes, you know what? I grew up and he named a church and he said, you know, that church was all truth and no love. And so when I said that I had sexual identity issues, they just pounded me with truth and I got no love. And I went out into the world and they gave me all love and no truth and it destroyed me. He goes, thank you for loving me in my brokenness and thank you for telling me the truth. There's a cardinal, a guy, a, a, a leader in, in another denomination who said this, and I think he's right, although I think he's wrong, and we ought to civilly have discourse about the sufficiency of the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross, but nonetheless, Cardinal Francis George said this, look, this is what's happening in our land. I expect to die in my sleep, and I expect my successor to die in his shame, and I expect his successor to die in chains, and I expect his successor to die in flames, and I expect his successor, to pick up the ashes and rebuild Western civilization. So I don't know if we're gonna die in shame or chains or flames, but I don't care for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. And I'm gonna do everything I can to rebuild Western civilization right now. And we might be the first church they come to shut down, but we, by God's grace, are gonna be the last people to shut up. And we're going to do it in kindness and firmness. We are going to be 1 Corinthians 16, 13, 14 people. That's how he built this. So church, be on the alert. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men, godly men, godly women. Be strong. And make sure in verse 14, as it says, let all that you do be done in love. Father, I pray that that is how we would be marked. I thank you for the kindness of God that has pulled me out of my darkened understanding.
my ignorance and my hardness of heart. I thank you, Father, that you came along in my callous state, given to my own sensuality, for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness, and you taught me a better way. I pray you'd make us your church, that we'd be the most humble people on the face of the earth. We're not smarter than anybody else. By the kindness of God, you've shown us the beauty of your way, and you've brought us back to the ancient paths where the good way is so that we might walk in it. And we pray you give us one pure and holy passion, and we pray we would not be ashamed of the gospel. And we pray we would, with the kindness of a child, say, hey, I don't know if this is what is gonna get me in trouble or not, but that man has no clothes on. And that through our courage, the spines of others would be strengthened. And by your grace, potentially, some would be called out of darkness into your marvelous light. Father, give us this one pure and holy passion. Glorify yourself in us in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and make this our prayer, shall we?